listening to the Bible 126 show. When we get to the end of when we get to chapter 11, we have some grumbling starting. And uh, it's interesting how grumbling can be a sin. I don't know about you. I think if I ask for hands on how many of you grumbled, I know I'd have to raise my hand. I mean, that's, but you never think of that as a sin. Well, here in the book of Numbers, uh, uh, God hits it pretty uh, head on. Now, in the next few chapters, I kind of enjoy this part of the book because we're going to see several interesting things. One of the things is you're going to get some insight into Moses. And uh, uh, I wish I was good at dialects. I'd love to take some of these quotes with a good Brooklyn, New York Jewish accent because it almost comes through with the King James. And also we discover something else that I think is even more fascinating because God himself can really be sarcastic. You know, it's, we don't think of God as being sarcastic. Well, watch. He, uh, he, <laughs> he lays it down as we go here. So let's just jump in and, and, uh, and uh, tackle uh, uh, Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed those who were in the farthest parts of the camp. Now, I have no idea whether this is a lightning storm or what form it took, but the fire of the Lord, and we find this phrase occurs here in chapter 16, Leviticus 10, Job 1, elsewhere, the fire of the Lord, or the fire from heaven, and listed several other places. Um, I think it's fruitless to, to uh, speculate as to what shape it took, but clearly... It wasn't just uh, an illusion to get their attention of some kind. It actually consumed them that uh, were on the perimeter of the camp. So um, he's, he's, he's getting their attention here. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And what's the Lord doing here? Is it reestablishing, reaffirming the fact that he has a mediator between he and the people, namely Moses? That's going to get challenged here shortly, but uh, in a lot of ways. In chapter 12, we're going to find his elder sister and his brother uh, seem to be uh, challenging his, his leadership. We'll see what happens there. But anyway, uh, when he prays to the Lord, the fire is quenched. And he called, upon, he called the name of the place Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now, um, it's interesting when uh, how we often look back and think of the good old days, how the past can achieve a luster, especially when we're under some present burdens. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that this gang was enslaved making bricks in Egypt, right? Uh, most of us have a some one way or another a very graphic image of, of, of uh, the life that was upon on them. And uh, here they are, not far removed uh, from that experience. And uh, it's unbelievable to hear, the, hear, hear their view, starting verse 4. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell to lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? 
They'd been fed on manna, this strange stuff that was on the ground each morning, but uh, sort of like a coriander seed. Um, uh, but they got tired of that diet. And uh, the other clue here that's also a, a danger signal is uh, the mixed multitude. These were not all 100% the camp of Israel. There were some other strangers that traveled among them. And we notice that both here and elsewhere in the scripture where they're paralleled, those are always a sign of trouble. Uh, Nehemiah, when he rebuilt the temple, we find there were people that wanted to help, maybe quite sincerely. Some maybe not so, but Nehemiah um, has to deal with that. And uh, this concept of the mixed, this concept of being separate, this concept of of uh, keeping um, that which is consecrated, that which is holy, separate. Now, uh, that doesn't mean there can't be proselytes or converts. That's not what it's talking about. These are people not of the same mind. In fact, it was it was, it was the mixed multitude that was among them that fell to lusting, and that's contagious. Sin is a contagious disease. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Strange what they remember. They don't remember the taskmaster's whips, the need for more straw to make the bricks, and on it goes, right? And we chuckle at them because it's so dramatic, so graphic, but how much do you and I um, grieve the Lord by ingratitude? I think I've shared with this group uh, an experience I had as a father, and for me it was an incredibly uh, uh, important insight. Um, Maybe not exactly parallel to this in some respects, maybe in other ways it is. Um, One of the great things you do, you love to do as a father is do things for your kids. And I frequently, on the impulse, would pick up something I'd want to give one of my kids and uh, have it in the car and look forward to coming home and surprising uh, uh, one of the kids with a surprise, only to discover that so-and-so had been naughty that day and I was powerless to do that. And I, I, the frustration of not being able to give good gifts to your children was dramatized to me. And I, can, I, I, I think we call him father for good reason, for that very same reason. But the other insight was that uh, I got is that, uh, you know, if your kids misbehave, you can take action. You can respond with some kind of appropriate, hopefully, punishment. And if they misbehave or disobey, you can deal with disobedience. When they're just ungrateful, nothing you can do but feel pain. If they're ungrateful to their mother, I can deal with that. But if they're ungrateful to me, I can't deal with that. There's no way I can respond to ingratitude. You don't discipline for ingratitude, I don't blame. All you do is feel pain. And I was in a situation like that one time, somewhat intensely, and I was blown away by the insight that if they misbehave, I can deal with it. If they're ungrateful, I can just feel pain. And I realized how we're in the same, God is in the same boat. When we misbehave, when we're disobedient to his law, he can take us in the woodshed. Hopefully not as dramatically as he does in the book of Numbers. But when we show ingratitude, what can he do? 
but feel disappointment, feel pain. That's a flabbergasting idea that you and I have the capacity to cause the creator of the universe injury. How? By disobeying his law? No, he can deal with that. He's provide, he goes to great lengths to deal with that. But what about ingratitude? Interesting. Now, this is maybe more than ingratitude. This is really grumbling and, and a form of, in effect, rebellion. That um, <laughs> they, Of all the things they would remember of Egypt, um, and the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But they go on, verse 6. But now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. And by the way, it's an interesting study to study the phrases used of manna. God never calls it manna. The Hebrew in the manna is an equivalent to what you and I would call it, what's this? Or this thingamajig? Or it's, it's sort of a derogatory name, this whatever it is. That's sort of what the word means. God calls it angel's bread in one place, bread of heaven in another place. Jesus Christ ascribes an identity of himself to it being the bread of life. God's phrase of it is very, very elevated. It's their phrase that's sort of a slang, derogatory manna itself as a word. It's something only Israel uses. God uses it only once in a sense of reflecting the way they refer to it. If you do a word study, it's kind of interesting. But anyway, this staple, this, uh, this uh, 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 unusual form of nourishment that God provided for them in the wilderness got boring. And I uh, imagine they published books on 107 ways to prepare manna, you know. Uh, and, and on the one hand, as hum uh, humanly, we can understand that problem, but there's quite a big thing. You know, it's, it, they, they've come a long way in the wilderness where uh, not long ago they were slaves, and now they're complaining about the, uh, the blandness of their diet or whatever. Uh, Anyway, it goes on, verse 7, The manna was as a coriander seed, and the color thereof was of the, the color of dillium. I assume it's all illuminating to you. Uh, I don't know what you do with that information. <laughs> and the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills and beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it. Added hamburger's helper. No, no, I'm sorry. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. So this wasn't, uh, you know, poi, for those of you that know what I'm talking about. You know, almost every culture has some bread equivalent. In the Hawaiians, of course, the poi, we've all had some experience with that. Uh, this, will, But it did have a flavor, and it was apparently uh, had some variety. And uh, something interesting about, uh, whenever we talk about manna, we should remember a couple of other things. It was strange stuff in the sense that you couldn't store it. Everyone had to gather their own each morning. There was one exception, and that was on the sixth day of the week. Twice as much would be available, and it would not spoil, like it normally did if you tried to store it, it would spoil by the next day. Uh, through the Sabbath, it would work, and uh, very strange stuff. But what's interesting, what, uh, but God didn't do that accidentally. It's for you and I to understand that you can't gather manna for others. They each have to get their own. You and I, each of us, have to be in his word, Daily, You can't read twice as much one day to make up for the next. And if you, for some reason, miss a day in your Bible reading, um, I wouldn't get in a big guilt trip over it, but recognize you can't make it up. 
reading twice as much the next day ain't the same thing in terms of your feeding. It'll keep you on some little reading schedule that you've worked out. But most of those reading schedules are Satan's trap anyway, because when you miss a chapter, the good ones say, don't try to catch up. Read whatever's for that day. If you missed a day, fine, keep moving. Be why? Because you don't, you don't fall into that kind of a, a bear trap. But the point is, really, you need to do it for yourself. You can't do it for others. And you need to do it daily. You don't store it up. You don't save it. You do it every day. The bread of life. But in any case, here they are, gathering, grinding it, beating it, baking it making cakes of it, and so forth. In verse 9, And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. There are books written by various authors and experts trying to explain what this really was. It was like this or it was like that. And I, I, I've decided to spare you all these speculations because they are just that. Uh, it is what it is. It was God's mechanism for providing nourishment to uh, the, the uh, nation Israel. Um, verse 10 when Moses heard the people weep throughout their families every man in the door of his tent and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly Moses was also displeased it's, uh, uh, apparently the grumbling is very open and, and uh, uh, prevalent in verse 11 Moses said unto the Lord wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant and wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Enough already. <laughs> Look at Moses. You know, Moses' relationship with the Lord is pretty intimate. You know, if you're really tiptoeing around God the Father, you don't talk this way. But when he's close, you know, one can be one can be you know, uh, critical of Moses for his style here. I just find it a sign of intimacy. But look at verse 12. I love it. Have I conceived all these people? See, Father, it's your fault, not mine. I mean, was this my idea? You know. Have I conceived all these people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father beareth the nursing child unto the land where thou didn't swear to give unto their fathers? said, hey, Father, this is your burden. This was your idea, you know. Enough already. From where should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone, because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand. If I have found favor in thy sight, let me not see my wretchedness. <laughs> Moses is at its wit's end. Huh? This uh, is uh, some some uh, uh, authors refer to this as Moses's tantrum. Okay. Now, don't get the idea Moses was some kind of namby pamby, you know, neat guy. Remember, he had a temper. He slaughtered. He he he's guilty of manslaughter. If you recall that, that was back in. Um, Exodus early, I think chapter 2 or so. He killed a guy. So this guy, Moses was not a, you know, some kind of a, uh, you know, uh, pushover. He's a hands-on doer and yet uh, one with a real temper. And so, But I, I personally don't see him as losing his temper here. I hear him sharing an exasperation with an intimate father, but it sure is colorful. 
So uh, first thing we do is uh, spread it around a little bit. Verse 16, the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me 70 men of the elders of Israel. God is here going to respond to the fact that the burden's too much for Moses. He's saying, okay, that, you know, if that's the way it is, let's, let's spread it around a little. So he gets, Gather unto me 70 men of Israel, whom thou knowest to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them unto the, into the, unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. And some scholars feel this is the end of the Moses we know. Because it's not without a diminishing, perhaps, of Moses' own spirit. And I'm not going to make a big case of that. I'm not sure it's true. I'm just sharing it's a viewpoint that has some support. Anyway. Um, and say thou unto the people, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, for, and ye shall eat flesh. For ye wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. But watch out. That's the small print. Ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty, but even a whole month, until it come out at your nostrils, and it be loathsome unto you, because ye have despised the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? You want meat, you're going to have meat. They're going to stuff it down their throat, and they're going to gag on it. And that's and, I, and I'm not I'm not far from what the text really you know it, it, that's really what he's doing. Moses said, "The people among whom I am are six hundred thousand footmen, and thou hast said I will give them flesh, and they may eat a whole month." Now that's a lot of meat. 600,000 footmen plus support, wives, kids, and so forth. And you're going to feed all of them at one sitting a meal of meat? That's a lot. Three meals a day for a month? That's a bunch. He says, I will give them flesh that they eat a whole month. Verse 22, shall the flocks and herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? This is Moses' speculation. He's trying to visualize how this is going to get taken care of. They left Egypt with some substantial herds and flocks and such. Not enough to, to, to provide this kind of a relief. The Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand become short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. It's funny how often we're guilty of the same thing, you know, that God is somehow limited in his resources. What a joke. Verse 24, And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. The Lord came down in a cloud and spoke unto him and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. 
And there ran a young man and told Moses, and he said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord, Moses, forbid them. And Joshua's got a little bit to learn yet. Here, This is, a, you know, how can, you know, how can they be prophesying? They're not part of the package here, right? Moses said unto him, In envious thou for my sake? One thing we're going to discover is that Moses never rose to the occasion of worrying about God protecting himself. There's an issue. God will deal with it. Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them? See, Moses has got a very interesting attitude here. The fact that there's a couple of guys here that uh, surprised everybody by uh, uh, prophesying, Moses recognized was a good deal, not a, bad, not a divisive thing in, 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 in what's going on here but rather evidence that the Lord is moving. And, and would it not that they were all spirit-filled? Moses went into the camp, he and the elders of Israel. Now that's all the preamble. How is the Lord going to fulfill this commitment? Verse 31, There went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea and let them fall by the camp, as it were, a day's journey on this side and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, as it were, two cubits high upon the face of the earth. So at the camp and a day's journey on both sides had quail three feet off the ground that all he had to do was gather. But a lot of quail. Okay. Ten homers. That doesn't mean much to you and I, but let's call it 60 bushels per family. That's a lot. See, this is a, may the Lord spare you and I this kind of a blessing. <laughs> Verse 32, and the people stood up all that day and all that night and all the next day, and they gathered the quails. He that gathereth least gathered ten homers. In other words, the smallest collection for a family was 60 bushels. That's not an average. That's the low. That was the, the smallest. Yeah. And they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. And for this, you need to understand that the way they typically did this in Egypt, from Central Africa, often they would fly northward, these, these uh, various kinds of birds, typically very fat, very succulent. That the Egyptians used to do is take them and sun-dry them, kill them, sun-dry them, and then eat them raw. They weren't cooked. Didn't need to be. This is a sort of a uh, Near Eastern version of sushi or something. I mean, it was not uh, <laughs> not uh, cooked. Okay, so that's what they when they spread them all abroad, meaning they sun-dried them after collecting this enormous quantity of quail. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, in other words, they're eating these quail, while the flesh was yet between their teeth before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And he called, I, Moses, I assume, he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatava, Hatava, because they, there, there, there they buried the people that lusted. Uh, Kibroth Hatava means the, the uh, graves of the craving. 
the graves of the craving. And the people journeyed from uh, Kibroth Hatava to uh, Hazaroth uh, and abode of Hazaroth. Interesting lesson. Um, lesson in dissatisfaction, a lesson in uh, grumbling, a lesson in uh, not being satisfied with what the Lord has provided. In this case, they wanted more, the Lord gave more so that they gagged on it. They left the graves of many behind because of this issue of quail. So when you think of being provided quail in the wilderness, that's not exactly a blessing. It's a, it's a response that of, of uh, in effect, a, a peculiar form of judgment. Okay, verse 12, I mean chapter 12. And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman which he had married, for he had married a woman of Cush. Now, uh, we all may remember Zipporah. Zipporah was actually from uh, the northern region of the Sinai Peninsula, near Paran, according to Habakkuk 3 and 1 Kings 11. Uh, That was his first wife. We don't know, I don't believe we know what happened to her, whether she died or just separated, what the story, we know she separated, but in any case, um, the Midrash also uh, elaborates on this a little bit. The tradition is that it was a Cushite from Tharbis, daughter of a of the king of Ethiopia that he married. Uh, and this is in, also mentioned in Josephus Antiquities and other non-biblical sources point out this this uh, Cushite woman. But in any case, whoever she was or other circumstances are, Miriam, Moses' older sister, is upset about it. Now, Miriam, you recall, was the one that uh, saved him in um, Exodus 2. She also was the one that was called upon to sing the praises after they went through the the, the Red Sea crossing. So she's her older sister is distinguished in that respect. Exodus 15 records that. And uh, but uh, she at this point is, uh, I suppose I could be flippant here and call her the first woman's liver. You see, she's going to uh, uh, presume upon Moses's office. Aaron, to the extent that Moses had a strong will and a hot temper and all those things, Aaron seems to be. Uh, from what I gather, a real milk toast. Uh, uh, we find in the golden calf, who helps them when, they, when the crowd clamors for a golden calf? Who has the technology, the technique, the workmanship to build a golden calf? None other than Aaron. And he seems to go wherever the wind's blowing. So uh, the fact that Aaron is tagging along with Miriam is, uh, on the one hand, perhaps not that surprising. It's also interesting that in the judgment, he seems to be spared. He seems to be... Um, Not a, not a major factor here. But Miriam, the older sister, is starting to presume, and she speaks against Moses, and envious presumably because he took this Cushite woman, this uh, Ethiopian perhaps, uh, to wife. Verse 2, And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. That's the risk, you see. Whenever you're tempted to do something you shouldn't, remember there's one person you know is watching. You know. Verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek above all men who were uh, uh, upon the face of the earth. And everybody, this, this little verse is subject to so much comment. And how could, you know, Moses wrote numbers, and he said that he's the meekest person on the earth. That make him very meek, you know. Like the guy said, humility is the one thing I don't do well, or something. 
whether that whether he wrote that or whether it's added by a common you know this is ob- the book of, something else I've spared you uh, the book of Numbers while it's obviously the book of Moses is a collection of fragments or pieces it isn't that it, it's very non-uniform there's chronologies also there's laws and re- regulations stuck in at several strange places. That gives rise to all kinds of speculation that it's really a compendium. The book of Numbers as we have it is really perhaps a reassembly uh, during, from the, from the uh, uh, revival, and I think of the days of Josiah. So uh, that doesn't mean Moses didn't write it. Don't misunderstand me. But at the same time, uh, it, uh, there, there may indeed be copyists or you know, amanuensis addenda to it, and this may be one of those. I can't see it's a big deal, but it's amazing how many people try to attack the authorship of Moses because it makes this remark here in the third person. So uh, be that as it may, we'll move on. Verse 4. By the way, in case I haven't mentioned it, don't, uh, I strongly urge you not to waste any of your time with a documentary hypothesis, which is very pre- prevalent, very common in many, in many books and in many uh, denominations. The theory that the five books of the Torah, the uh, five books of Moses, were written by different authors, J.E.P. and the so-called Jehovah's the Elohist documents or the priestly documents. That's all hogwash. Uh, it's very eloquent. There's a number of scholars in, in certain periods that have spent a lot of effort trying to build those kinds of theories. They're shattered by a couple of strange observations, namely that Jesus Christ quoted from all five books and attributed to Moses himself. So all this, whether it's copious styles or all these other things, is really irrelevant. The fact that the vocabulary is different in certain places derives not because it's a different author, but because it's of the subject matter. God has many titles, and Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And uh, that's Elohim. When you talk Jehovah or Yahweh, whatever you like, that's the God of the covenant relationship. It's the relationship that's relevant that causes the vocabulary, not because there was some different penman. That's nonsense. Don't waste your time. It's a, it can, uh, unless you happen to want to get into the textual criticism, and if you're going to study it, study it thoroughly. I wouldn't go at it half you know, yeah, baked, but uh, it's also a waste of time in terms of its spiritual value in my mind. So, uh, But the main thing you and I can take the benefit of is that there's just no doubt about the authorship of the Torah or the five books of Moses. They are indeed Moses. But moving on, verse 4. The Lord spoke suddenly unto Moses and, uh, and unto Aaron and unto Miriam. Miriam wants to have a dialogue with the Lord? Okay, she'll have a dialogue with the Lord. Uh, Come out, ye three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And the three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle. That must have been impressive. See, he generally was inside the Holy of Holies. But this cloud, this flaming, fiery cloud thing, emerges, comes to the door. Want to chat? We'll chat. (laughs) Stood in the door of the tabernacle, called Aaron and Miriam. Hey, you two, come forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. Unto him, I mean with him, will I speak mouth to mouth, even plainly, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord Shall he behold? Wherefore then, were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Right now they realize they're in trouble. 
God says he speaks through prophets very, you know, by dreams and visions, but not through Mo- Moses. It's more direct. It's face-to-face, belly-to-belly kind of discussion. It's, you know, Moses and the Lord argued. You and I wouldn't have the guts to talk to the Lord the way Moses did, but it was a sign of intimacy. And we're going to see more of that before it's all over, too. And that doesn't mean, you know, he, he blows it to it. Remember, but he, he blows it so bad he's in the penalty box and his, his ministry is interrupted. And as you know, I, I have a view that it will be these, that he and Elijah both get a chance to finish their ministries, both of which are interrupted uh, in Revelation 11. But in any case, um, despite Moses' failings, his, his relation to the Lord is colorful and fascinating. And uh, But anyway, at this point, uh, God said, you know, I speak to him face to face, you know, and uh, wherefore, are you not afraid to speak against my servant, Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle. Behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Heavy stuff. Now, leprosy, the word in the Hebrew for leprosy actually covers a collection of various skin diseases. It isn't a specific medical term as you and I might view it. There's a number of these various things that occur. But a leukodermia is the general view of this particular episode. And, of course, she's white, and it's clear visibly that she's leprous. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us wherein we have done foolishly and wherein we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead of whom the flesh is half consumed when he cometh out of his mother's womb. It's interesting that Aaron himself was not leprous. For by virtue of being a priest, he apparently was spared the specific judgment that came upon Miriam. And you can spend a lot of time speculating about that. Uh, maybe that's one of the reasons he's so earnest on trying to uh, you know, get her uh, healed here. But anyway, and of course, leprosy is a, not only a, a loathsome disease, especially in that part of the country in a lot of ways, but it also is symbolic of sin. Symbolic of sin. It's also a disease. Um, and uh, the curing of the lepers was Christ's demonstration that he had power not only of leprosy, but over sin. So it's more than just a, uh, a medical or social issue. It also had an ecclesiastical or Levitical view in terms of sin. But in this case, she sinned, and the sign that was laid upon her was the leprosy. Don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean someone that has leprosy, they have it because they're sinners. If that were true, we'd all have leprosy. So don't, you know. Verse 13, And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. The Lord said unto Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that let her be received in again. And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not until Miriam was brought in again. And afterward the people uh, removed from uh, Hazaroth and encamped in the wilderness at Paran. So that was Miriam's little episode. I, I infer from the text that after the seven days she was healed, or she wouldn't have been brought back into the camp. It doesn't make that express, but clearly that, that was the situation. Okay. It's interesting that Moses does not defend his position. He lets the Lord do it. Important lesson there somehow. Um, because it's not just with Moses. Jeremiah did the same thing. Uh, back, if you may recall, in, in Jeremiah 28, Hananiah accused 
Jeremiah didn't deal with it. He let the Lord deal with it. And Moses said the same thing here. He didn't defend himself to his sister. Uh, so he uh, uh, viewed her actions and his possible actions in response as trying to control God's sovereign power. If he's appointed by God, that's God's problem, not his, to demonstrate it. Interesting idea, because your first instinct would be to, wait a minute, Miriam, what about, and you know, argue and defend. Moses didn't do that. He let the Lord take care of it. And I think that's interesting, especially since it happens more than once. Okay. We're on a roll. We're on a roll. Okay. Now we get to chapter 13. Very, very big milestone in Israel's history. And uh, one that we should, uh, you know, spend some time on. Chapter 13, verse 1, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. Now, incidentally, if you compare this list with other lists, you'll find that they're different heads. So there's different clans within the tribe. So it's not as if there's singular the head. It's one of the leaders. Okay, so you don't get hung up on the fact that some of the names are, are similar and some are different and all that. So it's not a big deal. Just be alert to the fact that it is a little different. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were the heads of children of Israel, and these were their names. Of the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zechariah, of the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Horai, and you don't, you don't need to remember, of these 12 names, there's 10 you can skip. There's two you want to note. In verse 6, of the tribe of Judah, we have a guy by the name of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Now, this guy Caleb is an interesting guy. When they search out the land, they happen to run into an area around Hebron there where there are giants. The Anakim, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. What's interesting is Caleb, later, 45 years later, when he gets his choice of whatever he wants, what turf does he pick? The turf of the Anakim. I mean, this guy, he, he took him on. He's a interesting, both Caleb and Joshua are marvelous, marvelous studies, fabulous people, but Caleb's often overlooked. This guy was... Uh, my kind of guy, you know. Moving on, verse seven, of the tribe of uh, verse seven, tribe of Issachar, Igel, the son of Joseph, tribe. No, the, of the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. And you may miss the fact that Moses changed his name from Hosea, which means the Lord is salvation. Uh, means he is he has saved, to Yehoshua, which means the Lord is salvation. So this is Joshua. In his former name, his name is changed by Moses to Joshua. Okay, so that's uh, those are the two you want to remember. Then, of course, it goes on tribe of Benjamin, Paltai, the son of uh, Rephu, and the, the tribe of Zebulun, Gad, uh, Gadiel, the son of Sodai, and of the tribe of Joseph, namely of the tribe of Manasseh, Gadai, the son of uh, Susai, 
and of the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of uh, Gimeli, and of the tribe of Asher, um, Sethur, the son of Michael, and of the tribe of Naphtali, uh, Nephi, the son of uh, Vashsai, and of the tribe of Gad, G- uh, Guiel, I guess, the son of uh, Mekai. Those are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Joshua. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said unto them, Get you up this day into the Negev, and go up into the mountain, and see the land, what it is, and the people who dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, or few or many and what the land is that they may dwell in, whether it is good or bad, or what cities they are that they dwell in, and whether in camps or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it is fat or lean, or whether there is wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. Translated for you and I, that's July, August. Okay? In that time period. Now, one couple of small things. Uh, he says get you up this day into the Negev. And this is one of those places where a little learning can confuse you. The word Negev means the south. But that's the name of an area which is south of Canaan. Later on, when they live there, the Negev is south, so the name Negev becomes synonymous with south. So in current Hebrew, Negev and south are synonyms. But they're actually going north to the Negev, which is yet... Further north is Canaan. The word gets its identity later as Negev and South being equivalent because from Canaan, the Negev is to the south. That's right in the center of it is Beersheba and all that. So, so it's a small point, but if you don't get confused, they're not going south. They're going to the Negev, which is an area named the south, which is south of Canaan, not south of where they happen to be right now. Small point. But again, uh, these 12 are charged with going out to see... Uh, uh, what the people are like, strong, weak, how do they live, uh, is there wood? You know, it's a, it's a survey. Hmm? Verse 21, So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab. The man came to Hamath. I'm not going to make a big geography thing out of this because it's hard without slides or charts and it's hard for the tape. So I'm not, But let me just caution you to recognize there is a, a wilderness of Zin, and there's also a wilderness of Zin. They're not the same. It's no big deal, but just as you're reading, don't assume that one's a transliteration of the other. They're actually different, slightly different. And when they say the desert of Zin or desert of Zin, they're not desert like dunes and sand. It's what you and I would call the steppes. That is, there's brush and there is, there is grazing capability, although it is wilderness. So wilderness is a better word than desert to be, to, to be right. Which in some translations, whatever, you may find the word desert rather than wilderness, but that's fine. Anyway, um, so they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab as the men came from Hamath. And they ascended by the Negev and came to Hebron, which is the high ground, by the way. Uh, it's uh, about 2,953 feet above sea level. It's uh, the highest part of that area we call Judah. After you know, later years, it'll be called Judah. And it's the area that Caleb will later on, 45 years later, choose for himself. But interesting, they came to Hebron, where Ahiam and Sheshai and Talmai, 
the children of Anak were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came unto the brook of Eshkol, and they cut down from there a branch with one cluster of grapes. This is just one cluster of grapes. But it has to be born on a staff between two men. That's a cluster of grapes, right? They bore it between a staff, and they brought it of the pomegranates and of the figs. And the place was called the Brook of Eshkol, because the and by the way, the Eshkol it means it means uh, the uh, Valley of Eshkol is the Valley of the Cluster. And uh, anyway, because of this cluster of grapes, the children of Israel cut down there and they returned from searching of the land forty days. So they were gone. These twelve guys were gone for forty days. Now, it doesn't say it here, but the two men that bore this post with the cluster of grapes on it, I forget whether it says it in the Scripture or whether it's by tradition. I've frankly forgotten at the moment. But by, by tradition, if not in the text, are Joshua and Caleb. Because they're the guys that have the positive attitude towards this whole thing. The rest of them are terrified and talk the people out of going into the land, which is where a lot of trouble starts. But um, And we'll come back to the Anakim in a minute. But uh, for 40 days, these 12 canvassed the land. Most of the, uh, and, and the presumption is they, they saw more than just the Judah area, the Hebron area. But that's the area that, that we're focusing on for two reasons. That's where the grapes were, these incredibly fertile fruits. We have a cluster of grapes carried by two men. That's a cluster of grapes. But there was also the Anakim there. And I'll come back to the Anakim in a minute. Large guys. How large? Uh, Goliath was of the, was one of the sons of Anak. Goliath was what eight feet tall or whatever. I mean, these these are heavy dudes, and uh, so uh, one can understand their terror. If the Anakim are typical, they got a problem, right? Uh, so uh, we go on here, verse twenty-six. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh. And uh, they brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land to which thou sentest, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. That expression is used a lot, the land of milk and honey. And uh, it could mean any of several different things, but without badgering the language and what it specifically refers to, uh, the impression you get is reasonably valid. You know, milk and honey in terms of providing rich uh, uh, resources uh, for them to enjoy. Verse 28, nevertheless. That's one of the heaviest words in the Scripture. How often that introduces such tragedy, such failure, such a, an inability to... Um, Step up to what the Lord has done. Uh, you know, it's interesting how it's not the past or the future that we stumble on, it's the present. Yes, they rationalize the past, but naively before when they worry about the leeks and garlics of Egypt. It also isn't, uh, it's the present that gets us in trouble, it's the present by which we're measured, and it's the present that we're dealing with here. They had their chance. But nevertheless, the people are strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. 
The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the edge of the Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. See, the ten guys are saying, We're in real trouble. The people are strong that are there. They have walled cities. And, uh, and by the way, some of them are giants. Now, they're not using that as a figure of speech. They are um, heavy dudes. And we'll come to that in the end of this chapter. But um, then it goes on and describes the different tribes. But while they're all getting riled up by the reports of these uh, nervous ten, Caleb stills the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. What are the people, what are the ten overlooking? God, right. When you've got God on your side, you're a majority. And uh, Caleb understood that. I get a sense that Caleb's that kind of a guy anyway, you know. The bigger they are, the harder they're going to fall. Let's go after him, you know. He's a, he's a, a you know, a, a, a early Marine, you know. But um, but that may be unfair to Caleb. I have to believe that both he and Joshua had a consciousness that God was on their side. God brought them this far. God will wants them to take the land. He's not going to bring them this far and for being destroyed. But anyway, it goes on here. Caleb says, Still the people before Moses, verse 30, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with, uh, with him said, We are not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. Well, that's um, uh, a bit of an exaggeration. You know, a minute ago they said it was milk and honey and had plenty of food. Here it says now, now that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. By the way, both may be true. There are warring factions. These Canaanites were, rough, were, were a rough crowd. Um, and, all the, and all the people we saw in it were men of great stature. Now, that's probably an exaggeration of this one particular group that gave them some alarm, the Anakin. And it explains that in verse 33. In other words, this isn't just a figure of speech. Verse 33, And there, there we saw giants, the sons of Anak, who come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. So we were in their sight. And again, we often attribute this as just a figure of speech of their, their timidity. On the other hand, these guys, uh, uh, let's give, the, give them their due. They're big guys and warlike people. These are, these are uh, uh, understandably uh, uh, frightening. Um, now, be, before we go any further, it might be worth, I don't want to make a whole study of the Anakim. That would be inappropriate here. Let me just do a little review. Um, well, maybe we should do a little bit of review. Let's turn to Genesis 6. We'll, we'll just touch on what could be a very substantial study just by way of review and reminder. Um, we all know the story of Noah's flood, but it's well to keep in mind what gave rise to the flood, and it was not just that the world was evil. If that were the case, we'd be ready for another flood. Um, Genesis 6, uh, 
was a response to a number of things. Uh, verse, Genesis 6, verse 1, It came to pass when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth that the daughters were born of them, that the sons of God saw that the, the daughters of men that they were fair and took them wives of all whom they chose. Now, verse 2 is subject to a lot of controversy. There is, of course, a theory that these are the sons of Seth and who are the sons of God, the Bar Elohim? And a, a competent study can only come to one conclusion, that Hebrew there is a reference to angels. And they took daughters of men and gave rise to illegitimate offspring of a very strange kind. The theory that the sons of God is a euphemism for the sons of Seth, still faithful, and the sons and the daughters of men were unbelievers. When believers and unbelievers come together and have children, they're not strange biologically strange creatures. Quite the contrary. And so what's going on here is something really quite spooky. The offspring is described in verse 4, and there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore them children of them, the same became mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Uh, uh, Ancient language, referring to the fact that there was a period in history prior to the flood where uh, there was a unnatural combination, and that gave rise to the Nephilim. The word actually means the fallen ones, the, these these strange uh, uh, these fallen angels, uh, uh, gave rise to the fallen ones, the Nephilim. In the Septuagint version of this passage, the word in the Greek was gigantes, meaning the the fallen ones, but it was misunderstood to be giants. They were large, but that's not what the word originally, the Nephilim means the fallen ones. And there's a whole study we can go into. I believe the same event that is uh, here described is also memorialized in our own traditions, our mythology, the mythology of the Greeks, hint of the same series of events. And uh, we study, if if, if this is new material or you want to review it, I encourage you to get the tapes that we did on Jude 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7, or 2 Peter 2. In both those areas, we get into this in some detail to review the, the, the point of view that I hold to, uh, that was sometimes called the romantic view, that these, in fact, were the, 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 this isn't, uh, that this, in fact, happened. And uh, Now, another subtlety here that many people miss is verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, this phrase that he was perfect in his generations, we generally take to mean that, gee, he was upright. He, he uh, behaved himself. He was not part of the, the big sinners that were uh, widespread in the society. Indeed, that appears to be the case of Noah, but the phrase here, perfect in his generations, really says something else. His genealogy was uncontaminated. His genealogy was uncontaminated. It may very well have been that Noah and his family was one of the few, maybe the only, family that was still cleanly human and thus fit for setting the stage for the Messiah. And God's need to, to wipe out the rest had more to do than just the fact they're sinners. It had to do with this intrigue, the satanic intrigue, to attempt to prevent a... Uh, a, uh, a uh, a, a viable path for the Messiah to be born. There's much more going on here. than it, But the thing about verse 4, you know, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. That occurs because of these events prior to the flood. But notice the other expression. 
and also after that. In other words, this was not confined to just before the flood. It apparently gave rise to some Nephilim that were post-flood because they're still alive when Joshua enters the land. They were alive, some of them, some derivatives of them in some way, called the Anakim, the uh, six-fingered, six-toed creatures that that uh, David encounters uh, 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 later on. In fact, it might be kind of fun, just since we're, we have a little bit of elbow room here, you might pop with me to First Samuel 17. A very familiar story. We all know the story of David and Goliath, right? And in First in Samuel 17... We have this guy, Goliath, who was six cubits in a span high. Now, that's uh, six times, that's what, nine feet plus? Between nine and ten feet tall? That would be a little terrifying, I think. I mean, I, you know, if that's, if that's what the Anakim, I said eight feet tall, I wasn't uh, accurate. Apparently, if it's uh, Goliath in verse 4 of uh, First Samuel 17, he himself, if he's typical, and he may not have been typical, he may have been either, you know, one of the heavies among the Anakim, but in any case... Uh, Goliath uh, is uh, six cubits in a span, had a helmet of bronze and so forth. And it goes on. It, it, you know the whole story. It's worth reading on your own. But the thing I want to, uh, you know, it, it's fascinating. Little David is going to take Goliath on. How is David taking Goliath on? By faith. He's not going to match strength for strength. David's not trained as a warrior. He's not, and this guy's a professional. He's not only big, he's a pro. You know, he eats nails for breakfast. I mean, this is a rough one. David's taking them on. How did you take them on? By faith, right? How many stones does David pick up? Five stones. And you guys are all ahead of me, of course. Um, in verse 40, it says, he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones out of the brook. And one of the fun things, if you're in a Bible quiz or whatever, is if David was so confident, why well, wasn't one enough? It was. One knocked Goliath down. You wonder, the question, of course, is why did David pick up five stones? And the answer to that is in 2 Samuel. Pop over to 2 Samuel, I think it's 21. 2 Samuel 21. In verse 16, uh, we find that in verse, uh, again, uh, there's an entanglement here uh, against the Philistines. And from verses 16 through the end of the chapter 22, you'll find four guys are killed by either David or his servants. One is Ishbai Binab in verse 16. Down in verse 18, we find there's a guy by the name of Saf who was uh, slain. And then um, verse 19, there's one that's unnamed, a brother of Goliath the Gittite. And we get down here, um, uh, there's another one um, uh, later. But anyway, verse 22 summarizes those previous verses that these four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand uh, of his servants. So Goliath apparently had uh, four sons or brothers, and uh, uh, David apparently knew that because it wasn't just Goliath. He had four buddies, and so David's ready for all five. He got five stones. He's ready to take them on. The other four get knocked off, you know, uh, some chapters later by David and his servants, but it's interesting. Those are those are the Anakim, tough guys. And... Uh, so when it speaks of giants, on the one hand, I'm not condoning the act. Of, I'm certainly not condoning the act of the ten spies. But you need to understand they did face some pretty strange opposition. If you're going to fight some warriors that are ten feet tall, you 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 
It's a test of your faith. I think it's a... So they're, the ten are nervous, and, and Joshua and Caleb are saying, let's go get them. Verse four, uh, chapter 14. I uh, didn't say they survived the flood. That may be, may have, they may have been, uh, uh, the Anakim may have been a result of um, problems after the flood. It doesn't say that that nonsense occurred. I shouldn't call it nonsense, but that kind of foolishness or, or, or inappropriateness, uh, uh, what, what Jude and Peter talk about, Jude in 6, verses 6 and 7 and 2 Peter in verse two, chapter 2, uh, uh, angels that went after strange flesh. These particular angels are chained in darkness until a certain time when someone's going to be given a key and they're going to turn loose again. Um, and also Jesus says, in the days of Noah were social and the coming of the, sons of, days of some, coming of the Son of Man be. So whatever was going on then, don't be surprised it happens again. So that gives rise to a viewpoint that the Rosemary's Baby kind of thing may not be just a, a, you know, a bizarre fiction, that it in fact may be a, something to anticipate when, when, as, as things get kind of rough near the end. So uh, that's a viewpoint. That's uh, with some merit. So the Anakim are uh, not, I'm not suggesting they're survivors of the flood. I'm just suggesting that that's the kind of thing God was dealing with, with facing prior to the flood to deal with. Chapter 14, verse 1, And the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. The people are upset. Ten of the twelve spies are saying, This is hopeless. We're facing giants, walled cities, etc., Verse 2, And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. Can you believe these people? Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would God that we had died in this wilderness. Uh Uh-oh. That's what you want? That's what you're going to get. God is listening, okay? Would that we had, would, or would God we had died in this wilderness? Terrifying thing to say. You know, you and I might well tonight when we go home is thank God for the prayers he didn't answer. Huh? I don't know about you, but uh, I imagine all of us at one time or another prayed for something that God, in his wisdom, didn't respond. I'm glad that he didn't literally respond to some of my requests the way he did to theirs. Wherefore, hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, and our, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Oh, okay, we'll make an exception with your children. Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? Boy, these guys are um, hopeless. And they said one to another, let us make a captain, and let us return to Egypt. That's Edward G. Robinson doing that part of it. And, uh, <laughs> then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were of them that searched the land, tore their clothes. See, Joshua and Caleb didn't only come back with a strong, positive, let's go get them, they also sided immediately with Moses and Aaron, and, and they re- carrying their clothes. It was a was a classical uh, expression of of remorse and repentance and, and and grief. Renting their garments. Right? Verse seven, and they spoke unto all the con- company of the children of Israel, saying, "The land which we passed through to search 
it is a very good land. And if the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us unto this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. You know, it's good for us to, with 2020 hindsight, look at this and applaud Joshua and Caleb and disparage the lack of faith of the ten, and that's certainly true, and yet uh, let's not lose sight of the predicament they're facing. Verse 10, But all the congregation demanded to stone them with stones. You always shoot the bearer of bad news. Right? If they don't agree with you, stone them, right? And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. That must have been impressive. Don't take that lightly. The Lord didn't normally do that. He spoke to them through Moses. In this case, he's making a personal appearance. The Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? How long will it be before they believe me for all the signs that I have shown among them? You know, it's interesting how throughout the Old Testament, when God wanted to identify himself with his greatest work, his most dramatic theater, he pointed to the deliverance from Egypt and the plagues and the, and, and the red, and his parting of the Red Sea. And how interesting in the Psalms and elsewhere, that, that of all the things God did, the creation, you name a lot of things, what, was, what he points to with pride and he's entitled, is the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And yet that very, that most dramatic staging uh, is, is exactly what these people are just uh, taking for granted or ignoring or what have you. You know, how long before they believe me for all the signs which I have shown among them? These weren't casual miracles. These were deliberately staged by the God of the universe to get, their, to get Pharaoh's attention. When he called uh, Moses in the first place, he told Moses that Pharaoh's not going to believe you until I take his firstborn. That wasn't an afterthought as the movie sort of, the Ten Commandments sort of lays on you. It makes it sound like, no, if you look at the text, when Moses was first called from the burning bush, God pointed out that it will take the death of the firstborn before they, you know, that, 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 that's, that's what it's going to take. God knew that it was going to take. He deliberately staged that. If you'll, if you'll allow me a, a vernacular, he was showing off. He was, you know, uh, uh, it was theater in a sense. And here, in spite of all that, they don't believe him. So verse 12, I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Lord's saying, I've had it with these. I will start over. You see? I'll smite them with a pestilence, I'll disinherit them, and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Speaking to Moses. I don't, I, I've had it with these guys, I'll start over. Now, I love Moses. was funny. And Moses said unto the Lord, now Moses was not shy. He had uh, what is called, uh, I think the theological term is chutzpah. Mm-hmm. Then the Egyptians shall hear it. That's cute, right? Hey, Lord, you want to do it? The Egyptians will hear about it. You want, you want to knock them off? The Egyptians. Then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. You know, he went through all this trouble to impress the Egyptians. 
You going to blow it now? And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, and that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if thou kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, because the Lord was not uh, was not able to uh, bring this people into the land, which he swore to give unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. See what Moses is saying. Hey, Lord, Israel isn't the issue. Can you keep your promises? The heathen have heard it. Right? Notice the logic that Moses is using here. He's not saying to the Lord, hey, you promised the people. Hey, they've blown that. That's not his issue. Hey, Lord, the heathen know of your commitment to bring this people into the land. If you don't pull us off, it's your honor, not ours, that's at stake. That's important to understand for another reason. That's exactly why Israel is going to be redeemed in the land. We'll come back to that. I don't want to break the stride here. We'll keep, it's time permitting. We'll go back to, I think it's Ezekiel 37. And notice that when the Lord promises to bring Israel back, it's not because they deserve it, but it's because the heathen who I promised I would. It's the Lord's honor at stake, not the 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 deservedness of the people, both here and later. But Moses, shrewd, is, you know, arguing that very point. Hey, Lord, you know, the Egyptians are going to hear about it. You know, they know that you promised to bring these people in. And they'll say, because the Lord was not able to bring this people in the land, which he swore to, he swore to give unto them. Therefore, he has slain them in the wilderness. In other words, Lord, you're going to knock these guys off to get out from under this promise. Is that what you're, that's what they're going to say. Verse 17. Now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the, father, of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. He's quoting from Exodus 20, right? Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. Interesting, interesting guy, this guy, Moses. Interesting to see the basis upon which he petitions their deliverance. You might just pause. This is an interesting pause. I can't resist to try to draw the parallel. And I'm winging this without my notes, but I think it's in Ezekiel 37. Uh, try verse 30, uh, chapter 36, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 and 37 is that area in Ezekiel where it's the valley of the dry bones, the vision of the regathering of Israel. We're all familiar with it. God is going to regather Israel into the, he has, he gives Ezekiel this peculiar vision of the dry bones, but then interprets it, meaning that Israel is going to be regathered in the land, but not with belief at first. They'll get the spirit later. And there is an event that shocks them into orthodoxy, so to speak. That's chapters 38 and 39 that will come later, where God is going to stage a specific victory for them. When the Soviets and their allies enter the land, five-sixths of the Soviets will be wiped out. And that will not only shock the world and the Soviets, it will shock Israel to realizing God's hand is once again upon them. But in anticipation of that, in chapters 36 and 37, we're dealing with the regathering of the land. Okay? And... Uh, 
We get down to just just to pick a few verses. You can read the whole chapter at your leisure, but let's pick up verse 21. Okay? But I want you to be sensitive to why is God gathering Israel back in the land? Verse 21. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they went. Israel is supposed to be the messenger of God's being and, 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 and his nature. And they blow, they profaned them. So they don't, they don't deserve any blessing. That's the end of this point. Verse 22. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, among the nations to which ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries. Not just Babylon, by the way. That's what Ezekiel was concerned about provincially himself. This goes far beyond the Babylonian regathering what Isaiah calls the second regathering, which we're seeing going on today. I will take from you, uh, you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and on he goes. But notice the basis that gives rise to Israel's regathering the land. It isn't because they deserve it. It isn't because they've faithfully been the beacon of, of uh, Jehovah over the centuries, hardly. He's doing it because the heathen know he promised he would. And it's his honor at stake is why. And how fascinating it is from that prophet, prophetic view of the nation Israel and the, and the events that are forthcoming on the world scene today, how interesting it is when we pop back to numbers, that's the same basis that Moses argues successfully, in a sense, with the Lord in sparing this nation. Now, we got down, we're back to uh, Numbers 14, and we are in verse 20. Okay, Moses has made his very interesting petition. In verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all those men who have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have put me to the test now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swore to give unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he hath another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring to the land wherein whereinto, uh, he went, and his seed shall possess it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwelt in the valley. Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. See, that's harking back to uh, verse uh, 2 and 3 of that chapter. Let's remember what they asked him for. They murmured against Moses and Aaron, verse 2. The whole congregation said, 
Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that would God that we died in this wilderness? So let it be written, so, you know, so let it be done. Huh? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Hey, the kids I'll take care of, because they're going to grow up, and they're the ones that are going to the land. For 38 years, the nation Israel is now sent back to wander in the wilderness until the parents die off. When all the parents have died off, the same, this group that had the opportunity to cross over in Kadesh Barnea and go into the land, those that failed to rise to that occasion, when they're dead, their children will go. The only two survivors are Joshua and Caleb. Forty years later, virtually, 38 years later, they lead the nation. Joshua is the leader. You know, even Moses doesn't get to go in. Because by then he's blown it too, so he gets to see it from a mountaintop where he dies and the Lord buries him. So even Moses himself does not enter in 40 years later. Now he's getting on. He spent some time in Midian. You know, he grew up under as an as a, as a heir to the throne in uh, Egypt, in effect, and uh, then went into exile for, what, 40 years in Midian, backside of the desert. And now another 40 years on top of that, that guy's getting on. But he doesn't enter the land. He gets to see it, but from afar off. Joshua picks up the leadership and, and takes them into the book of Joshua. And uh, I'll come back to a question there. But So God says, as truly as I live, say the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so I'll do for you. You insist, that's what I'll do. You want to die in this wilderness? So be it. You're worried about your kids? I'll take care of your kids. Verse 29, so carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all who were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from 20 years old and upward, who have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swore to make you dwell therein, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. In other words, the two of the twelve, the two spies of the twelve, that gave a good report. They were unsuccessful at turning the opinion of the crowd, but they get credit, full credit. The rest of them are history. But those two, he's going to say, uh, I, will, I, I swore I, uh, to make it wrong, except for Caleb and Joshua. Verse 30, But your little ones, whom ye said should be a prey. See, he's playing back to See, God is being sarcastic here. Interesting. This is the creator of the universe talking. He's angry. He's upset. And he is laying out their punishment from their own declarations in verses 2 and 3. But your little ones, whom you said we should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years. And bear your harlotries until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which ye search the land, even forty days, a day for a year, shall ye bear your iniquities even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they die. 
And the men whom Moses sent to search the land, who returned and made the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land, even those men who did bring up the evil report upon the land, died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were of the men who went to search the land, lived still. And Moses told these sayings unto all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose up early in the morning, and they went up into the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we are here, and we will go up into the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. See, now they want to go. You know, yesterday it was bad news. You know, tough stuff. Lord says, no way. You guys are going to die in the wilderness. The perversity of these people. Now they turn, we'll, nuts to that, we'll take it. Ride. They rose up early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we are here, we will go up unto the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. Moses said, Wherefore now do ye transgress the commandment of the Lord? But it shall not prosper. Now, would you have missed your chance, guys? Verse 42 Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that ye be not smitten before your enemies. And the Malachites and the Canaanites were there before you, and ye shall fall by the sword, because ye are turned away from the Lord, therefore the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up unto the hilltop. Nevertheless, there's that word again, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. You know, you'd think they'd get the message. They spent all this time several chapters ago understanding the order of march and how it goes, right? But the, uh, uh, the anyway, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant and Moses himself departed not from the camp. And 45 is a quick, verse 45, last verse of the chapter, is a battle summary. The Amalekites came down, and the Canaanites who dwelt in that hill smote them and routed them, even to Hormah. They lost their butts. They got creamed. Why? Because God was not with them. Very interesting. They could have done anything had they gone by faith. But this business of, uh, of uh, uh, of uh, uh, not accepting God's grace on the one hand, is only exceeded by the the presumption of assuming that, gee, we're sinned, we're sorry, and now we're going to charge off and go. And they, and they, and they really got clobbered. Um, incidentally, those of you that would like a, uh, a commentary on this uh, area, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 8 through chapter 4, verse 11, deals with this whole issue. This whole issue. Uh, we might just pop over and take a quick look. I don't think we have time to, to go through it thoroughly. But Hebrews chapter 3, verse 8. Verse, start, verse 7. Wherefore the Holy Spirit saith, Today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation of the day of the trial in the wilderness. Making reference to this very issue, see. 
When your fathers put me to the test and proved me and saw my works 40 years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, said they do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Canaan is the land, is the place of God's rest. You can't enter into his rest without unfailing, uncompromising faith. Going into the land was no picnic. You had giants in the land. You had walled cities. You were tackling professional armies. This rabble called the nation Israel is going to take on that these these uh, seven nations. Several were knocked down earlier, and then they take actually uh, Joshua faces seven nations there, the Canaanites. Uh, but with God, that the, but, but it takes faith. That was the missing ingredient. So verse 11, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest ye, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's our challenge, you and I today. It, it fits. We'll be in the same position in a sense. If you have uh, unfailing faith in God's abilities, uh, there's nothing that, uh, that he leads you into that will be impossible to you. On the other hand, um, the evil heart of unbelief can cause you to uh, miss his rest. And it goes on as the rest of the passage goes through, right on through to the, uh, the, uh, the uh, we've got a little time, let's keep moving here a little bit. Um, verse 13, but exhort one another daily, while it is said, today lest any of you be hardened through sin, through the deceitfulness of sin. For, ye, for we are the partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it said, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. There again, he keeps hammering that same quote. That fits, fits you and I. There is a point when you've got to vote. The congregation of Israel wasn't allowed the luxury of saying, gee, we'll think it over, maybe let's think about it next week. Ten guys told them one story to another, and they had to vote. And that vote, that event in, 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 in uh, uh, that time of decision was pivotal in terms of their destiny. It's no different for you and I. There is a point at which God's Spirit will not always strive. And as we face this right now, as we talk about it, God is calling, God is making it, uh, a, a, taking a position with you. And the, the, uh, the writer in Hebrews here emphasizes that uh, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. He's drawing an analogy in the New Testament to exactly the lesson we had in Numbers uh, 14 here. For who, when they did heard, did provoke? Did not all that came out of Egypt by Moses? But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest, but them that believed not. The issue was not their courage. The issue was not their skill at battle. Their issue wasn't any of those things. It was strictly a question of choice. A choice. Your destiny and mine are determined by our choices. Not our skills, not our talents. Our choices. Do we choose to believe them or not? Verse 19, last verse in chapter 3 of Hebrews. So we see that they could not enter. Why? 
because of unbelief. And that's the same thing that hinders you and I, our lack of faith. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left of us entering into his rest, let any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached not, did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And again, it emphasizes rest. And uh, verse 8, again in verse 7, again he quotes it. Again he limited a certain day, saying, David, today, after so long a time, it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. He's pointing out that the rest that, that is there was but a precursor of the rest that God has for you and I. Now, that leads to another interesting question that I can't resist but take on here. Uh, back to Numbers. Um, they had their chance. It's interesting that for 40 years they wander in the wilderness until all the parents, that generation, has passed away. That's why 40 years, biblically, is a generation. There's occasions in prophecy where we're concerning ourselves with what is a generation. You're, and I won't call 35, 38 nominally. It's 40 years as, as per this uh, rather dramatic example. Now, at the end of those uh, of this wilderness wanderings, Moses is permitted by God to see the promised lands from a hill, from a mountaintop, and then he goes, and he knows he goes off to die, and God buries him. And then Jude gives this peculiar hint that uh, Michael and Satan fought over Moses's body. And if you wonder, I want to know why. Get the tapes on Jude. We won't get into that here tonight. But the interesting thing, Joshua then assumes the leadership. Joshua is the military commander. He is going to take the children of Israel across. Now, they've come around now. They were previously south of Canaan, south even of the Negev. By the time they wander in the wilderness and so forth, they're now eastward of the promised land, so they cross over the Jordan. And a place called Bethabara, the same place that John later is going to baptize. Same place that Jesus can say of these stones, if I raise up of these stones, children of Abraham. It's those 12 stones that Joshua put there back when he crossed over. But the point is, Joshua does a strange thing. Joshua, when he enters the land, sends 12 spies in again, right? No. He sends two. Before he crosses, you know, before he goes in to take the land, he's, he's a military commander. He sends a couple of spies in. And it's fascinating is why did he send two? His mentor, Moses, sent in 12. There's two possible answers. The simple one is that Joshua figured out from 40 years before that two was plenty if they're the right guys. You see? Those 10 other guys put noise on the channel. You got a signal noise problem here. So let's get ten. Let's get two good ones and and scratch the ten. That's one possibility. And indeed, two guys go in. They reconnoiter. They visit Rahab, this innkeeper, and uh, she hides them for a while. And as a result, gets some special favors. And indeed, when 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 Jericho, they, 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 oh, the first thing Joshua does, he has he's a, he's got the spirit of Caleb in him in a sense. They pick the biggest and toughest. Of the seven nations that are in the land, the toughest are the Amorites, and their capital is a place called Jericho. This big, so he takes the big one first, goes after Jericho, and of course Rahab does her deal. She hides these uh, spies, does her deal with them. Hey, remember me when it's over, because she'd heard about what happened in Egypt, 
the children of Israel may have forgotten while wandering in the wilderness. Forty years earlier, she heard about the deliverance from Egypt, and that impressed her, so she wants to be part of the action. She later on does join the camp. She marries uh, Solomon and has a son by the name of Boaz. And Boaz, since he had a Gentile mother, has no problem picking up Ruth later. That's a whole other thing, but let's bar our hearts. Father, we praise you that you care so much about us to reveal yourself to us in your dealings with the nation of Israel.